Amen. Thank you, Blake and Praise Team. Open your Bibles if you have them to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to be in the whole chapter 1 to 25 this morning. So Deuteronomy chapter 6. In late 2009, early 2010, Andrea and I bought our first home. We became homeowners. And we had been renting a house before then and really were pretty convinced that we knew almost everything there was to know about home ownership. I mean, what's to know? You buy the house, you call somebody to come fix it when it's broken, right? That's what you do as renters. So that's what we thought you kind of did. We moved into the house and within just a few short months, tree in our backyard contracted a disease and snapped and fell over. Then we had the tree replaced and we spent a good deal of, of money to have the tree replaced so that it was a mature big tree. And about a year in, a stiff wind came through and it snapped off at the base and fell over in our yard again. We learned some things that you have to do when you plant a tree that big, apparently, that we didn't know before. Um, We learned that there was a lot that came with taking care of a yard yourself. Uh, There was a lot that came with taking care of a roof and a foundation. In Texas, uh, it's hot. Have I told you Texas is hot? Texas is really hot. And um, in Texas, you have to water your foundation. I'm told you don't do that here, but in Texas, you you certainly do. Everybody buys soaker hoses, lays them around the foundation of their house, and about once a week or so, you go out and turn that hose on for about 15 minutes. Well, the first time I did it, I left it on for several hours. My neighbor's banging on the door. You can't do that. Don't overwater your foundation. You got to keep the dirt just packed in nice and tight to your foundation, or the entire house will crumble. So you know, the stakes are pretty high. Needless to say, there was a lot of things when I moved in that I realized I don't know about owning a home because you have to be taught how to own a home. You have to be taught how to take care of it. And if you're not taught, well, the whole house will crumble, apparently. You have to be taught. This is our last sermon in our series on worship that we've been going through this summer. Next week, we'll pick up in Matthew chapter 11, but we're going to close out the series on worship this morning. And what we're going to see is where worship begins, that it actually begins in the family. Now, I realize a lot of things that I'm going to be saying this morning are are directly targeted at families, but this certainly applies to anyone in here, regardless of if you have children at home or not, because the premise of what we're talking about is loving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, preparing your heart for worship as you come in here on Sunday morning, and that it begins in the household. Particularly, we have our, some of our college students here with us this morning uh, coming back from summer break, and some of you may be freshmen coming in for, to college for the first time. And it's certainly pretty normal to come in with the expectation that you're going to meet at college over the next four years, the one that you are going to spend the rest of your life with. That's certainly not an unrealistic expectation. I certainly did that. All right. So uh, go forth and prosper. All right. Let me just say. Um, but, But as part of that, what you're thinking as you're reading this is who am I looking for? What kind of spouse am I looking for? Am I willing to compromise on these particular things? And let me challenge you, students, as I will in a a little bit later, is to set the bar really, really high. As we think about what Moses is preparing the children of Israel to do, they're getting ready to go into the promised land. They're getting ready to take over ownership of the covenant of God, the household of God. And they have to be prepared for the home ownership. You understand, as they go into the land. Let's read. We're going to read the entire chapter, so bear with me. It's going to be a little bit long, but that's okay. Um, Start in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. By keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. 
Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who you are around. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your your fathers. By thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. When your son asks you in a time to come, what's the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God and and for our good always that he might preserve us alike alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God as He has commanded us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for this word that as we seek to understand it and apply it to our lives, that You give us grace, that You supply us with the wisdom and insight into this passage that we need in order to apply it to our lives that we would be different, that our hearts would be changed because we've encountered you through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So Deuteronomy is the last book of Moses. Spoiler alert, at the end of this book, Moses is going to die. The children of Israel are getting prepared to go into the promised land. And Moses, of course, is not going with them. He's going to die before he goes. So this is sort of a last charge before they go in. This fir- the first five books of the Bible are called the Pentateuch. This is the last one that we have on authority that Moses wrote. So it's his last charge to the people that he has led through the wilderness for the last 40 years. The word Deuteronomy means second law meaning that Moses is taking the law that he's already told to them and he's reiterating it to them for a second time to re-emphasize its importance in the lives of the people of Israel as they go in. But remember, this group has been walking around the wilderness, the desert, if you will, for something more than 40 years. Now, Why were they walking around the desert for 40 years? Well, they they could have been in much sooner. God had prepared the promised land. He took them up to the entrance of the promised land. And he said, hey, go look at the land that I'm going to give you and just 
you know, take a peek. See what kind of land I'm going to give you. So they send in spies and the spies come back and 10 of the 12 spies come back and go, have you seen the people in there? They're ginormous. There's no way we can defeat the people in there. So just to recap, God tells you through the prophet Moses, the one who's been leading you for the last 40 years, go in, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to drive the people. Go look at the beauty of this land. And you come back and saying, yeah, God's not, he's not bigger than them. He can't drive those people out. So God says, okay, fine. Take a lap around the desert for 40 years. He kills off the entire generation over the age of 20 until the last dude is hanging on, kills him off, and finally the chil- their children are ready to enter the promised land. So here we are, on the cusp of the promised land, with the next generation ready to go in to seize control of the land. But first, there's a final word of instruction before they do. Moses has to warn them and instruct them on what they do as they prepare to enter the promised land. And in chapter 6, Moses is going to tell them that the only way it is possible for you to go in And not only take control of the land, but maintain generational faithfulness to the Lord so that you stay in the land. The only way that's possible is for you to parent your children well. That's it. That's the only way you can actually stay in the land. It's for you to know what you're supposed to do. And why you're supposed to do it so that you can teach it to your children. You can see that there in verse 2. He tells them this. He says in verse 1 first, he says he's giving them these commands so that they might do them. But then that's not the end. In verse 2 he says that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son. See, the, the goal is generational faithfulness. Not just the faithfulness to the covenant, but that for generations to come, they would be faithful. Now, why is that important? Because if they don't maintain generational faithfulness, then God is going to pick them up and take them out of the land. So the only way they can keep the land is if they maintain faithfulness to the covenant. So you see, that faithfulness to the covenant comes at a high price. Or I should say, faithlessness comes at a high price. Your home. This passage is really long, and there's no way we could go through it verse by verse. And so we're going to be flying over this at about 30,000 feet. But I think there's three movements that Moses makes, three changes in this text that Moses makes. So this is going to be our three points for the sermon this morning. I want you to take a look at what it's communicating to us in the 21st century, how we understand our responsibility as parents, as future leaders of our family. What is... Uh, our role in generational faithfulness first is this, is to take responsibility for the instruction of your children. Take responsibility for the instruction of your children. How does Moses, how does Moses expect them to take responsibility for the instruction of their children? Look there in verse 7. He says, You shall teach them diligently to your children, And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Taking responsibility for the instruction of your children is to, he says, teach them diligently. The word means with repetition. You're to teach them with repetition. So you're supposed to teach them over and over and over again. Well, you might ask, Moses, how how many times am I supposed to do this? What, what, what's in your head? What, do you, what qualifies as teaching them over and over again? Well, he tells you there in verses 8 and 9. He says you put it on as frontlets on your forehead, bind it to your hands, bind the words of the covenant to the doorpost of your head. I don't know if you've ever had anything fastened between your eyes, but it's really hard to get off your mind, right? Both literally and figuratively. It's, 
something that you're supposed to teach your children, how much are you supposed to teach? Well, it's like it's bound to your hand. It's like it's bound to your forehead, bound to the doorposts of your house. Everywhere your child looks, everywhere you look, you are reminded of the covenant. That's how often you're to teach your children. When you lie down and when you rise, everywhere you go, you're supposed to teach your children always. But wait, what is it that we're supposed to teach them? What's the content of what we're supposed to say? What are the things that we're supposed to teach them? Well, the center of this passage, in fact, the center of the Old Covenant, in fact, the center of the New Covenant is found right there in the Bible in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 5. This commandment, in fact, took such a central role in the life of a Jew that they would recite it every single day. It became known, you've probably heard the word, the Shema. This is the Shema right here. The reason it's called the Shema is because the first word of the command in verse 4 is hear, which is the Hebrew word Shema. It means listen. It means don't just hear it, but actually do it. Put it into practice. What you teach your children is this. Child, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. There's a lot to that statement as far as the instruction of our children. The the meaning of this is that we instruct the child to love the Lord with all of their being, with everything they've got. Jesus adds at the end of this, with all their mind, just to make it extra clear. When he recites this, he adds that love the Lord with all your mind as well, just to make it really more prominent, that you love the Lord with your entire being. So this means that for for the Jews about to enter the promised land, in order to maintain generational faithfulness to the Lord, you must instruct the heart of your child. You must instruct the mind of your child to love the Lord. The strength of your child to love the Lord. So this is going to include you teaching them what sin is. Not just don't stick your brother's finger in a light socket, but the reason why you don't stick your brother's finger in a light socket. Because doing so is sinful. It's hating your brother. But it's not just a sin against your brother. It's not just a violation of house rules. That's where we often stop as parents. We go, hey, we don't do that in this household. But it's more than that. It's a sin against God himself. And it's evidence, child, that you need a savior, just like dad and just like mom. It's instilling in their heart that they're a sinner and that they need a savior. It's instructing the whole person But to the Jews that are about to enter the promised land, he says, look, if you're going to do this, if you're going to teach your children all of these things, if you're going to be careful to instruct the entire person to love God with their entire heart, what has to be true? Well, look in verse 6. It has to be on your heart first. That's what he says in verse 6. Parents, it has to be on your heart first. If it's not on your heart, you're never going to be able to teach that to your children. See, all your strength must be set on loving the Lord. Your mind must be set on loving the Lord. Your entire being must be set on loving the Lord. Therefore, you will want to take control for the instruction of your children. There's a saying... Those who can't teach. Meaning, if you're not good enough to make a living at it, you make a living teaching it. That's the implication. I'm not trying to offend anybody that's a teacher, but I'm just saying that's the saying that we have. But what God is saying here through Moses, what Moses is saying to the children of Israel, loving the Lord is not one of those things that you can teach without being an expert at. It has to be on your heart first. See, if loving the Lord is not part of who you are, you will not, you cannot teach that to your children. They will start to pick up all the exceptions that are in you. 
All the times you compromise, all the times you fudge. And that's not to say that you, should be, that you have to be perfect. Well, obviously you're not perfect. If you were perfect, we would be worshiping you this morning. Not God. No one's saying that you have to be perfect. Because you know what's part of the instruction of your children? You know what's part of teaching them to love the Lord and to fear the Lord and to come to the Lord? You repenting of your sin. That's part of the instruction of your children. I'm sorry, will you forgive me? When Sunday school was first started, way back in the day, the goal was to catechize the children, particularly the poor and uneducated children in society. The children that didn't really have parents to teach them, they would bring the children in and they would catechize them. Catechism is just a learning by repetition. Basically what Moses is commanding right here is essentially what catechism is. And so catechism typically takes the form of simple questions followed by simple answers. So the teacher might ask the question, what is God? Which if your child asks you that, you kind of want to tremble, your knees want to shake a little bit. How do I describe this to my child? Well, catechism gives you a simple answer for that. God is the creator of everyone and everything. And the child memorizes these kinds of things, much like you would memorize flashcards or multiplication tables. They don't totally understand what Trinity is and what that means, but it, it gives them a simple form of repetition that they can remember over and over and they can recall very easily. Now, the questions get more complex as it goes on, but the answers remain simple and memorable and doctrinally sound. And so Sunday school was created as a way of teaching this to the poor and uneducated children of the community. But there was a fear. Because as they began doing this, obviously people of the church wanted to take advantage of it as well. And so the fear was in opening up Sunday school to children that were part of the church community, that were, mem that were members' kids, if you will. The fear was if we start doing that, then parents will stop catechizing their children at home. Lo and behold, their fears have been realized. That has become the way it is now. So they would cease to apply what Moses is saying there to their own personal life and in their home. So then the answer became, well, what do you do to teach your children? Well, we take them to church. We're faithful in attending church. That's where they learn how to worship the Lord. As the saying goes, that dog won't hunt. That's not the application of Moses' expectation here in the text. Moses' command is to you in your home with regularity teaching your children doctrine of the faith. It is the parents' responsibility to train their children and it is a buck I'm afraid you cannot pass. There's no way that you can stand there on judgment day before the Lord and say, well, the teaching of my children was the children's minister's job. It was the student minister's job. It was even the pastor's job. The Bible, Moses, and God himself are all three telling you the same thing. It is your job, and no one can take that from you. It's your responsibility to instruct your children. Point number two, we must take responsibility for keeping idolatry out of our homes. Take responsibility for keeping idolatry out of our homes. Again, this is people with kids, this is people without kids. Take responsibility for keeping idolatry and sin out of our home. Moses is going to give this warning to the parents as they move into the land of Canaan. See, they're going to be engaging some people in war. They're going to be running some people off completely, and they're going to be taking over a land, and they're going to be dwelling there. And so that means that, that they're going to take possession of what he says in, verse, in the end of verse 10, and then in verse 11, he says, you're going to take possession of good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. 
So they're going to move into a land, and they're almost going to instantly encounter prosperity. Instantly, they're going to be giving a, given a land already flowing with milk and honey. Then he, he warns them in verse 11 and 12. He says, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. There's a, there's a temptation to recognize here that the land doesn't come without its challenges. You have to understand that when you go in, you're going to encounter an abundance of prosperity. And as soon as you encounter it, your heart is going to be prone to wander far away and forget the Lord. See, when your bellies are full, you forget that the Lord is providing that meal for you. A few months ago, uh, I preached on the Lord's Prayer. I know that probably seems like eight years ago, but it was just a few months ago that I preached on the Lord's Prayer, and as we were going through it, um, we got to the phrase, give us this day our daily bread. And as I was preparing for that sermon, the thought struck me and honestly felt a, a lot of conviction and just remorse even over how rarely, if ever, I've prayed for the Lord to give me food that day. How often do you really think about that? How often do you actually pray that the Lord would provide you food today? I don't think we really ever do that. I would go out on a limb and say, most of us in this room have probably never uttered that prayer except in quoting the Lord's Prayer before. Because the way prosperity works is the things that the Lord is actually providing you, the more they are in abundance, the less you depend on Him or the less you think you depend on Him. To provide for you. And so you start to move away. Jesus actually says it this way, something similar to his disciples. He says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because dependence on the Lord is required to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when you are prosperous, you tend to not revere or depend on the Lord as you should. He says to them in verse 17 that instead you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. The word there diligently keep means to guard. Picture the image of prosperity being like a fox trying to get at your chickens of faithfulness to the covenant. How are you going to protect those chickens that are out there in your field? To keep them away, keep the foxes away, well, you're going to build a coop for them. You're going to build some walls around them. You're going to go and regularly check in on your chickens. That's the image here in regards to your family's faithfulness to the Lord. So then the question has to be asked by us. What are the things? What are the temptations? What are the foxes that are coming in to remove faithfulness from the heart of your child, your spouse, your family. Time would fail us if we were to talk about all the ways that this would apply to a 21st century household, but I want to mention a couple. First is the family schedule. Parents, you are responsible for your child's schedule. You are responsible for your schedule. Your responsibility, believe it or not, is not to raise a well-rounded socialite who is good at soccer. That is not your responsibility. God is holding you responsible to raise a child who understands the doctrine of the faith and whose schedule has been protected by you so that they can be here on Sunday and see the body of Christ Worship. That is why he has put them in your family. It's your responsibility. So when a member of our church asks you, I haven't seen you at church lately, where have you been? And you tell them, you've been really busy. You're either telling them, 
I think you're a fool. Or you're telling them, I'm a fool. Because the question then has to be asked to you. Well, who made your schedule so that your Sundays weren't protected? Who made your schedule to ensure that you couldn't be at church and worship the Lord on Sunday morning? Who was the one that did that? And don't blame the sport either. Well, you know they schedule these things on the weekends now. Tell them no. Well, but you can't just tell them no. Yes, you can. Watch. No. Well, but then they'll sit my kid on the bench. Yeah, probably. It's not without its repercussions. But the question is, which one is more important? Go back to verse 6. If it's not on your heart first, then you'll be at every sporting event on every Sunday. Sunday for your family, and your, your children are going to pick up on this. Every Sunday will be, church is what we do when we don't have anything else to do. Church is what we do when the alternative is sit around and look at each other. Church becomes a hobby. And not a very good hobby. It's the least fun of the hobbies. Second, the second thing I, I want to just warn us about, and I'm going to say this, and it might, it might make some angry if you're not already angry. And just know when I say this, I'm not talking to one person in particular. I don't even have a family in my mind as I'm saying this. This is a warning across our entire culture right now, particularly our church culture. So this just is a concerned, also parent but also pastor of a church warning us to take note. So just know that. Smartphones are going to destroy the minds of our children. Period. Amen. They are absolutely going to destroy the minds and hearts of our children. If you want to know where sin has a free reign in your family or in families across the church. It's in the hands of your children. It's as if you've opened up the door to the chicken coop and you've just said, well, the three walls are enough to keep the foxes out, right? Fox won't ever find the doorway, surely. I've got guards up, safeguards up. Even though my child knows the safeguards better than I do, Even though they can look up a YouTube video and show them in five seconds how they can get around every filter you can possibly put up. Surely it's enough to keep the foxes out. Parents of young children in particular, listen to me. Don't do it. I'm begging you, don't do it. I know I'm going to face the temptation. You're going to face the temptation. I know it's coming. Where the world closes in on your child and says, you don't have, what's wrong with your parents? How come you don't have this? And you feel the pressure because you want your child to fit in. Everybody does. You have to go back to these words. Your, your goal is not to raise a well-rounded socialite. It's to raise a child who fears the Lord and who knows the commandments that are put before him. And the statistics are just now coming out about children raised in the smartphone generation, and they are heartbreaking. It's really hard to do surveys for children under the age of 18 with parental consent and all that kind of stuff. So most of the stats that you're going to find are for children 18 and over. But the children that are 18 grew up in the smartphone generation. We're teenagers in the smartphone generation. 79% of men ages 18 to 30 view explicit images at least once a month on their smartphone. 79%. When it comes to women, 76%. This is not one gender we're talking about here. This is all of our children. 
Just wait until the stats really start coming out about the 11-year-olds, 10-year-olds, 9-year-olds, 8-year-olds even that have smartphones now. Parents, keep sin and idolatry out of your house. If your children seek it when they're older, that's on them. But you have a responsibility while they are in your house to close the gate. Third, take responsibility for the discipling of your children. Take responsibility for the discipling of your children. So starting in verse 20, the tone changes a little bit. Moses goes from teach these diligently to your children to then he starts looking into the future in verse 20. What things are going to be like beyond just you taking control of the land. What things are going to be like when your sons are older, when your daughters are older. He says when your son asks you in a time to come. So the parent that sets his heart on love for the Lord, that sets his mind on love for the Lord, that drills doctrine into his children regularly, who fights to keep out from his home is going to have a payoff. Now, that does not mean that your children are going to be Christians. That's not what that means. Don't hear me say that. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that there will be a day when they're beginning to make real choices, real significant choices, and they're deciding whether or not I want mom and dad's faith or I want the faith of the world. And they're going to start asking you questions because of the doctrine that you've drilled in them. They're going to start asking you over and over, what, what, why are you doing this? Why do you respond this way? So I think the picture here that he's painting is probably a teenager, a kid that's a little bit older. You can see he's, he's questioning whether or not these commands that, uh, of God are, are relevant for him to follow. And so he says in verse 20, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Well, first he says, Lord, our God, he's part of Israel. He grows up in the tribe of, uh, or in the nation of Israel. So the God that they worship is the only God he knows. This is our God. But then he says that he has commanded you. What's, what's the meaning of all this? Are these my commands too, dad? Or are they just yours? Are, am I supposed to obey these or just you? So now the dad is is beginning to actually teach the kid what it means not just to know doctrine, not just to stay away from sin, but what it means to actually follow the Lord and why we do it. This is why. So the father walks through in the next few verses the reasoning behind why we follow the Lord the way we do and why his commands are incumbent on everyone. So here's what he does. First, he mentions the previous situation. So first he says, here's the previous situation there in verse 21. What was it? That we were slaves to Pharaoh. That was the previous situation. Then then we experienced God himself. He delivered us in the Exodus. That's how we experienced his power and saw it with our own eyes. Then there's the judgment of God. This is also why we follow him, because he is a judge. In verse 22, he dealt with Egypt and Pharaoh. Then we see the purpose of God in verse 23. He had a purpose for us, and his purpose was to give us the promised land. But then in verse 24, we see the word of God. He gave us the law that we would know how to follow him. Then also in verse 24, he gave us the stipulations. You must follow this, and if you don't, you'll be removed from the land. We must revere and obey him, son. Let's update that for a New Testament generation. So you've taught your child doctrine. You've guarded your family from sin. Your child asks you one day, probably with a roll of the eyes, just guessing, Mom, Dad, why do you have to be this way? Why do you do this? Why are you so strict? Why can't you just be like all the rest of the parents? You follow the pattern here that Moses gives to us. And it might sound something like this. 
because I was a slave to sin. Then one day, someone shared the gospel with me and told me that there was a way to have forgiveness of my sin through belief in Jesus Christ who bore the wrath of God on the cross on my behalf. I learned that the world would one day stand before God in judgment and the only ones that could stand the judgment of God on that day were the ones for whom Christ had already suffered their punishment. I learned that God's purpose for those was to give them eternal life. Life where sin and death would no longer rule over them. He conquered sin and death there on the cross. But now, God has left me with his word. That because I believe in him, I follow it. I guard it. I protect it for my family. Because I love him and I have an affection for him. Because he died for me. And he's told us in his word that if we obey, we can genuinely please him as his children. So it's incumbent on you as well. Verse 25 says it's righteousness for us. He doesn't mean that if we obey, we can have salvation. That it's works righteousness. You just work it out and God's going to give you. We, we can't do that. That's not what he's saying. He's saying if we believe, this is how we grow in our relationship to God. This is what right living is. This is what a personal relationship with God looks like. We obey. Peter Craigie explains it this way. The quote will be up on the screen. He says, righteousness in this context describes a true and personal relationship with the covenant God, which not only would be a spiritual reality, but would be seen in the lives of the people of God. Thus, the answer to the son's question finally focuses on the proper relationship of a man to God and the fruit of that relationship in daily life. The way Jesus phrases it when he talks about making disciples is you will teach them to obey all that the Lord has commanded of us. Parents, you're responsible for the discipleship of your children No one is going to take that responsibility from you. No one deserves that responsibility but you. Over the years, churches have taken on more and more responsibility for the spiritual development of children and youth. And as churches have done that, the expectations placed on the churches to provide engagement, particularly for teenagers, has been going on for 30 years or more has risen. But see, now we're at a point where we can no longer compete with a six-inch screen. We simply can't. Provides them as much social context as they want. Provides them as much escape as they want. And there's absolutely no way churches can compete with that but you have to come back to the original purpose of the church. We are the church, the body of Christ. Our primary, secondary, and tertiary responsibilities is to worship God and teach his word. That is the responsibility of the church. And that is it. We are to worship God and teach his word. Now, ask yourself, if there's something else that you wish the church would do. Maybe you're asking the church to be something it was never intended to be. Perhaps the things you really want the church to do for your child is something the Lord's pressing upon your heart to do. And perhaps the only form of escape that you know is to turn to the church and say, please do this because I feel a burden for it and yet I feel incapable of doing it. I can't provide it for my child. Hear me, parents. I know the pressure. 
I know the feeling. I understand it all too well. There's a desire because you're thinking, I've got to do all this and I don't know anything. The vast majority of us in this room, particularly those under about the age of 40, were never discipled by our parents. I won't ask for a show of hands, but many of us in this room were not discipled in doctrine of the faith, I mean, by our parents. And so now we're left with, I don't have anything. I don't have anything to give them. What do I do? No one discipled me when I was young. There is good news because the generation that Moses is speaking to didn't either. The generation that Moses is speaking to, their parents were killed off because they lacked faith. They weren't discipled in the doctrines of the faith. They grew up completely unshepherded, unshepherded. Ideally, you would have this wealth of teaching that was given to you for 30 years of your life that now you're turning to your children and you're just pouring out everything that your parents gave to you. But what do you do if you don't have that reservoir? What do you do if you don't have that built up in you? Some simple tools that you can employ even now. One is catechism. You can begin teaching your child through catechism. It's questions followed by simple answers. They memorize it. You don't have to worry right now about them understanding the depths of doctrine. You just need them to answer the question and memorize it, much like they would multiplication tables. One times two is two. Two times two is four. Two times three is six. I'm not going to go any further because I'm going to get in trouble. You teach them to memorize it. The image in your mind is like a mama bird taking in food and giving it immediately to your kid. You're staying one day ahead of your child. You're growing in your memory of the catechism. They're growing as well as you teach it to them. You're just staying one day ahead. Then I would also recommend worshiping together as a family at home. Taking time throughout the week. 15 minutes very short amount of time. Could be around the dinner table after dinner's finished, maybe before dinner, something like that. Right around the dinner table, just sing songs together. The reason that we provide the bulletin that we do that has all the songs there is specifically for young families to go home and teach those to your kids. They're doctrinally rich. But not only that, when they show up here in worship, they can sing with us. They enjoy singing with us. No kid wants to be left out. They want to be able to sing with you. And so when they know the songs that you've taught them at home, that you've sung together around the dinner table, they're excited when they get here and they can sing with us. A lot of times around our dinner table, it sounds like mass chaos as we sing songs that we sing here on Sunday morning. Come behold the wondrous mystery. My kids have spoons and they have pans and they're banging them as loud as they can. And it's so distracting, and it doesn't sound good at all. But they're growing to understand the doctrine through the songs. And we take just a moment to pray. Our kids love people in this church because they mention them all the time and just pray for them. We need to pray for this person just because we brought them up around the dinner table. So we pray, to, pray for them. And we open up the Bible. We read maybe one verse, two verses, We talk about what it means, why it matters for us, what we should do because of it. Very simple, 15 minutes, something that you can do, but it's a a version of family-driven worship that you can implement at home. Do it as regularly as you can. We must take responsibility to teach our kids how to follow Christ. How to move into this house. And though there are no guarantees, we do know that faith comes by hearing. They have to hear it and see it from you. And if we don't begin training our children, we will raise immaturity in an ever-collapsing church in this community. 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, pray for all those in this room, particularly parents of children, young children that are in their homes as they deal with insecurity, as they deal with fear, as they deal with rising anxiety over all of these things. Pray that you would give them peace. Settle their hearts. First, Lord, please win the hearts of the adults here that our hearts would be so set on fire with a desire for your word to know it well that we would seek to investigate. That as we grow little by little and give that to our children, what would become in 30 years is that our children would have a treasure trove of stuff that mom and dad gave to them. That they may teach their children also. Father, please allow our church to become a place where we desperately desire to make disciples, not least of which of our children. And that we would see our children and our children's children and our great, 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 great grandchildren owning faith, believing, carrying forward the doctrines of Christ because their great, 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 great grandfather and grandmother taught it to their children. Only you can turn the hearts of these children and we pray for that. Every child represented by a parent in this room and even the children to come in future generations, only you can turn their hearts and we pray you would. Grab them at an early age. They would desire more than anything to follow Christ wholly. It's in his name we pray. Amen.